1: I'm here today with Benno Weiner to talk about his new book, The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Benno, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me today.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, taking you know time to talk to me as well. I'm excited.
1: Of course. So at the beginning, Benno, could you say a little bit about your beginning? How did you come to work on modern Chinese history and the history of the ethno-cultural borderlands of China, like the UMDO region in particular?
0: Yeah, sure, it's kind of a long and windy story, so I'll try to give the sort of the, the, the short of it to, to the degree that I can. Um, I never planned on being an academic. I never planned on being a historian. I like to think of myself sort of as an accidental historian. Um, I always loved history. My mom sort of instilled that in me. Uh, I, I majored in history at the University of California at Santa Barbara in the early 1990s. Um, but didn't have any particular interest in China. I took some classes in China, which I enjoyed, and, and some other subjects as well. I knew I didn't want to focus on, on Europe, the United States, but you know, China was one of many areas that I was interested in. Um, but again, not to be a professional historian. Um, however, after my freshman year, I, I sort of on a, on a whim took a class at the Monterey Institute of International Studies, an intensive Chinese course, Chinese language course. It's now part of Middlebury College. Uh, which was A, the hardest thing I've ever done, uh, probably. It was, I think, a year and a half of Chinese in 10 weeks. Uh, but I also met a, another student there that was going to be going to, to study um, outside of Chongqing in, in Sichuan province after this was over. And again, just sort of to, to, to take a step back, this is, you know, the early 1990s. Some of your, your listeners will know this, but others won't. Um, China was very different, and, and the place of China in the American imagination was very different. There was not nearly so much, uh, it, you know, it wasn't really on the radar the way it is today. So the class um, I was in only had, I think, four or five students, while the, the, there was two Japanese language classes with 15 students in, in each. Um, so it, it, it was quite a different moment, I think, um, in sort of discovering uh, uh, what China is and, and, and could be. So I went to, to China uh, as a 19-year-old um, with a backpack and spent about three months traveling mostly by myself, uh, sometimes with him, by train and bus and foot in, in mostly Western China and Southwest China. Um, a lot of it was pretty inaccessible at the time, especially to foreigners. Um, you know, most of, most of Western China you, you couldn't go to without special permits, if at all. Uh, this is back when hotels wouldn't take foreigners and uh, foreign exchange certificates, we're, we're, you know, we're supposed to use that instead of the renminbi and for really a 19 year old from California, um, with really, you, know, you know, 10 weeks of language training, it was, it was amazing and, and beautiful and confusing and exciting. And, you know, sort of have, uh, I will admit to have some nostalgia for, for those days, but importantly for this, this talk, it's the first time I really realized or thought about the fact that there were a lot of people in China who weren't what I thought of as being culturally or ethnically Chinese, what we call the Han, um, of course, there were Tibetans there, and I knew that, um, um, but also various Muslim peoples and, and Mongols and Bai, Dai, Nashi, Zhuang, Hami, Yi, Yao, I mean, so many other of, the, of these, these people who have been categorized in certain ways by the Chinese state. And I visited many of the regions that, that they lived in, um, you know, which was so different, especially back then from, from Eastern China in, in so many ways. And I started to wonder what they were essentially doing there. You know, what, Why were they in China or what was China doing in their areas? Uh, what made them Chinese, you know, sort of in quotes? Uh, how do they fit in to this remarkably complicated place I was discovering? Um, so they're not really terribly sophisticated questions, but they're really sort of the, 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 the essential the ones that continue to drive my, my interest to this day to some degree, although I hope that they've sort of evolved um, since then. Uh, this question about um, how non-Chinese people have been incorporated into the modern Chinese nation state uh, the processes by which that happened and and sort of the 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 failures of that of that um, of, of, of those efforts so i returned to united states took more classes majored in history and east asian studies i graduated and i moved to new york city to pursue a career in the music industry uh, which is what i thought i always wanted to do and you know it was the 90s it was it was it was fun we had I had some successes and a lot of uh we'll call them failures um and eventually I realized this wasn't going to happen the way I wanted it to. And I stumbled upon a master's program uh, at, at Columbia in East Asian Studies. You know, having not been in school for, for, for several years at this point. It was a little intimidating. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I went and, uh, and, and, and sort of discovered that I was, I don't know, if, you know, we, you know I, I had some capacity to do this type of work. And that it interested me, and I, and I realized that I wanted to work on frontiers. But at the time, was really less interested in, in Tibet than maybe some other frontier regions of China, in particular Inner Mongolia and, and Xinjiang. And that was probably because this was the height of the Tibet Freedom Movement, um, and um, somehow I didn't want to, you know, I, I somehow wanted to steer, 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 excuse me, steer clear of that as far as what I would do as a as a as a as a scholar. However, things don't always go the way you, you thought they would. Uh, Colombia had just started the country's first, uh, I believe, the first modern Tibetan studies program under Robbie Barnett. Um, they offered classes in colloquial Tibetan as well as uh, classical Tibetan, which I think was a, a first as well. Within a few years, they had hired Gray Tuttle as the historian of modern Tibet. Again, I think that's a first to that position as well as Lauren Hartley as, as the Tibetan language librarian there. So, you know, you do what you do. You follow your, your, your resources that are available to, uh, to you. And I really couldn't have asked for a more supportive group of, of scholars to help me sort of discover um, that field. Now, having said that, I should add that despite, despite all this, I really do consider myself first and foremost, a historian of, of modern China. And, you know, if I have a hill to die on here today or more generally, uh, it's to sort of convince people in my field uh, that the borderlands are important, that you can't really understand and you shouldn't really try to understand modern Chinese history without prominently featuring really the 100 million non-Han people that inhabit 60% of the PRC's landmass mass uh, historically. Um, and, and, and still to this day, I often see conferences and volumes on, say, 20th century China that would make you think that it was the Ming dynasty that had become China not the Manchu Qing Empire. And for those of you that uh, may not know what I'm referring to, the Ming was a relatively truncated state that more or less included mostly ethnic Chinese people, while the Qing Empire was a a massive, multi-ethnic, multicultural, uh, multi-confessional empire. And it's the the, the Qing that became China, including all these Tibetans and Uyghurs and Mongols and what have you into this this formation. Um, So... I think this has to change, and I think it is changing. So I'll, I'll get off my soapbox there, uh, but it does give me a chance to 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 shout, give a shout out to my advisor Madeline Zelen and others at Columbia, especially Eugenia Lean, who were very supportive. Even though they do study, um, um, you know, China proper, so to speak, they're extremely supportive of my research on the Sino-Tibetan borderlands. Um, I... Do you, do you want me to mention Ondo in particular, or should we move on?
1: No, no, you you definitely can.
0: Okay. Um, so yeah, so why Amdo? Um, and I guess we should probably at some point uh, describe Amdo. But uh, primarily, there are two reasons. The first is is very practical access. Um, at least by the standards of, of Tibet, um, you 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 had access to Amdo in a ways that you never could in, in Lhasa or um, other areas of, of, of you know the Tibetan Autonomous Region. You simply can't do this type of research in Central Tibet. But at least back then, uh, you could in Amdo in fact, when I was in Xining, there was a, the capital of Qinghai province. There was an amazing group of mostly young scholars there, uh, many of whom are now putting out their own books on Amdo, on including uh, Max Oitman, whose books already come out and got a bunch of awards, Bretton Sullivan, Nicole Willock, Andrew Grant, all their books are coming out and, and, and many more. Um, and I do really wonder how that, group of, that cohort of us that, that were there doing work 10 years ago Um, and the fruits of that labor is now coming out, I really do wonder if that would still be possible today um, because the situation across China, but particularly in ethnic border regions have become uh, much more severe, I think, in the last few years. And of course, I should add uh, add that we were privileged as foreigners to be doing this research in the first place because ondo tibetans really never had the freedom to research their own history in the ways that many of us did. And then very quickly, the second reason, that Omdo Omdo fascinates me, because it really is and has long been an ethnocultural frontier, a frontier not just between China and Tibet, but also at the sort of uh, intersection of China, Tibet, Turkic Central Asia, and Mongolia. So it really is an ideal place to study ways in which states try to turn these fluid borderland regions into regularized components of the nation state.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I love that when you started off talking about your story, I love that you you know, voluntarily, accidentally decided to take an intensive Chinese language
0: program. Yeah, um, that's that's, uh, that's a whole other story that we probably shouldn't go into.
1: <laughs> that's a wonderful starting point. I love that, you know, accidentally signing up for just an intensive, <laughs> uh,
0: soul-crushing language it program. Was, it yeah. was something else, I'll tell you.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you talked there about, you know, um, being interested or fascinated in, at the very beginning, this question of, you know, what are the Han Chinese doing in non-Han areas, and you talked about, you know, those questions that you're interested in as a nineteen year old or thinking of as a nineteen year old being you know, quite um superficial or rudimentary, you know, not very sophisticated, but I definitely think you can, you know tra- uh, follow that thread all the way to this book. And some you mentioned also there um you know, following what you have access to, right? and following what you know what is available to you, the the teachers, the mentors, the resources, the librarians, also important um that are available to you that all led you to this topic. So with that, you know, the Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan frontier is, it is really a book of the archives. You know, its core, as you say in the book, is culled from the archives of the Zoku Tibetan Autonomous County. But you also mentioned in the you know the opening note of the book that in the early stages this project looked a little different, in part because you were, you know, conducting oral histories. I think you talk about, you know, conducting about two dozen of these before deciding not to go down that path, so could you talk a little bit about this? what you know what made you decide to stop conducting oral histories and switch to archival documents, and what was really important to you in deciding what sources this book could and would use?
0: Yeah, absolutely, thank you. Um, yeah, you have to be flexible. That's certainly something I learned um, doing this research. Um, the, blessed, the, the best laid plans and all that, uh, they, they rarely come out the way you think they're, they're going to. And I think that's probably a good thing more often than not. So I'm, I'm really pleased that I was able to write a book based prim- primarily on county level archives and, and similar material. And I think it's really unique, especially for the 1950s, which are so pivotal um, to, you know, to understanding modern China, to understanding what's going on today, I think, Um and I think having access to this, this very uh, grassroots material is really one of the great values of the book. And hopefully it's important not just for people studying Tibet or ethnocultural borderlands, but also for, uh, for China more, more, more generally, especially during the Maoist period. Um, having said that, I wasn't counting on getting these materials. Um, I certainly was hoping to get something like this, but, you know, you, I really didn't know that was going to happen. And I did plan on doing extensive oral histories, um, as you mentioned, and I did so for for probably two reasons. Uh, First off, the aforementioned unlikelihood of getting traditional archival sources. Um, And um, secondly, because I think oral sources can be wonderful. They can be a wonderful way of uncovering voices and stories that archives often leave out, um, as many, many people have pointed out before me. Uh, And this is especially true given the sort of power dynamics in places like OMDO, which are so racialized. Um, as well as the state's more general sort of uh, determination to dominate how history is told and who does the, the telling. Um, so I did do about two dozen oral histories in Shunhua in County, uh, or Yadze in, in, in Tibetan. Shunhua um, itself is, is really fascinating, and probably most people don't know much about it. Uh, it's, on the, it's in Qinghai province, but on the border with, with Gansu on the south bank of the Yellow River. Um, and it's the adopted homeland of the Turkic-speaking Salar people um, who trace their own ancestry to uh, usually to uh, Samarkand in, in present-day Uzbekistan. Uh, but it also has a large Tibetan population. The, the Salar tend to live in lower areas along the river while the Tibetans inhabit uh, sort of the, the upper regions of the river valleys, as well as uh, Hui Muslims and, and Han. So it really is a tremendously interesting, and you know, as part of the Qing imperial state, they had a garrison there, for instance. Um, so it's a it's a really important uh, and and interesting uh, point of of frontier ness, frontier politics, frontier whatever you want to call it. So I was excited to do work on on this county, and I did do interviews, as you said, uh, about two dozen, probably among both solar and Tibetan villagers, and they were they were fascinating. Uh, they were they were tremendous in some ways. It was such a Amazing experience to be sitting in someone's, uh, you know, living room or out on their, in their not patio really, but outside their homes, drinking, you know, drinking tea and, uh, and, what, and whatever else. Uh, they were also often really heartbreaking, um, particularly when these, these, these older people uh, talked about, uh, in particular, the Great Leap Forward, which was tremendously uh, devastating in this region, really as bad as anywhere in, in, in China. Um, as well as other topics such as the the Amdo rebellion of 1958. So I did do these these interviews and I was planning on doing more. Um, but one day I was talking to my solar uh, research assistant after coming back to Xining and he had just gone through a bunch of the transcripts and, and, or and I think he transcribed some of the interviews and I noticed he was sort of shaking or he was a little off and I asked him what was wrong and he told me that you know while we were in Xunhua uh you know which was where he was from talking to people that he knew or communities that he knew, he didn't really think much of what, what, what was being said. You know, was, he, was, he was fascinated as well. But only when he came back and started reading through the interviews that he realized just how sensitive and potentially dangerous, I guess, they were. Um, so more or less then and there, I decided to sort of can the oral histories out of concern for the safety of, of my research assistants and for the informants themselves and, and their communities. And I think in, in my own case, this was the right decision. Um, now it comes at a cost, right? Um, I have had some gentle pushback from people who want to hear more Tibetan voice in the book, and, and I certainly understand that. Um, fortunately, the luxury of having the archival sources made me realize that um, that I, I could take a different track with it. Um, that I, you know, I, I didn't want this to be a, a quote-unquote memory book, a book based on on people's memories of of the the nineteen fifties. Uh, again, I really do think that oral histories and other types of memory sources can be wonderful, but they really need to be theorized and problematized in particular ways. Uh, you really need to think hard about issues like how communal memory, for instance, plays into the, these um, the, the, these um, um, you know these the, the stories that are being retold. Uh, to put it another way, I guess, at least to me, an oral history or a memoir or whatever you want to. Uh, site is really a primary source from the moment that it's being collected or, or, or put down on paper. It's not um, a primary source from, the, from about the, the, the time it's being uh, described, right? You really can't disentangle um, the learned, everything that the inter- interviewee or the me- memoirs has has learned since the events cannot be entangled from the story that they're telling. Um, and I tell this to my students, right? This is okay as long as you understand that this is what it is. And seeing that I had the luxury of primary sources that were actually being created as events unfolded, in other words, they were outcome blind. Uh, I think my sources tell a, a particular story of that moment that a uh, a memory source would um, w- 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 might treat differently. Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a different thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, it would it would yeah. be a fundamentally different source. It would be a fundamentally different book.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that might be a great book as well, but it would be a, a, a different book. Um, and, um, you know, a book can't do everything, right? I've, I've learned that. You want your book to do everything when you start reading it, especially your first book. And then you, you at some point you realize, well, that's just not going to happen. Um, and so the book is what it is. As I say in the preface, uh, preface excuse me, it's a book about the, the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to transform this region, Amdo, its practices and its ideologies, its successes, its frustrations, as it saw them and as it described them to itself, these are internal documents about how the party understood what it was doing there, including its ultimate failure uh, and those re- repercussions. So I think that is valuable um, um, in its own sense. And, and I'm, I'm pretty proud that of the way it came out in, in, in most respects. Absolutely. And I
1: can, you know, I can, I'm sure those who have voiced concerns about, you know, the lack of Tibetan voices in the book have, you know, re- you know reasons for that and, you know, specific concerns. Um, something we're going to talk about, of course, is how this book, even though it is written with uh, sources, uh, archival sources by, created by the Chinese Communist Party, you know, for internal consumption, if you like, um, th- you do still access or, you know, bring out um, individual Tibetan actors—that's um, something we're going to be talking about—and what I think is one of the real strengths of the book, um, all you know, along with it being so based in archival um, material. But you mentioned there, you know, things like domination, dangerous volatility of the area, and of course the 1958 Amdo rebellion. And I just want to highlight this here because you know, violence and force is such a crucial part of this book, in large part because the because the book is framed around a violent act that was followed with even more violence. And, you know, here, very, uh, very obvious alluding to the rebellion. Um, This book both begins and ends with this rebellion. You open in July 1958 with Tibetan horsemen overcoming an isolated, um, lightly guarded government outpost and killing a district-level secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. And this event was, you know, to borrow language that you use in the book, one spark of a much larger fire, a fire that we see burning fully in chapter seven, which deals with the rebellion itself. And then chapter eight, the final full chapter of the book, looks at the aftermath. And everything in the middle is really showing the reader what decisions and what policies carried out by the Chinese Communist Party in the 1950s are really leading to the rebellion. So this event is so very central to this book. But as you point out, this rebellion has not really been the, uh, you know, the subject of much historical research. So could you talk a little bit about this? W- you know, why has this event not some, you know, not really been featured so much? And where does this book fit then in terms of scholarship on the rebellion and the history of the Omno region as a whole?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks. Um, and, and the I- irony, of course, is that the the party spent all the years up to the, to the rebellion, Trying to avoid that that outcome, that's the last thing they wanted. But for reasons that maybe we'll talk about, um, it's you know it, it ended up becoming something that seems, in retrospect, perhaps unavoidable. The Ando Rebellion itself is without a doubt the sort of signature event in in the modern history of the region, and, and maybe the history of the region in total. Um, when Ando Tibetans speak of it today, and they do so in hushed tones, and um, you know a, a, among family members, and and you know they certainly wouldn't talk about it out loud. But they just refer to it as, as 58 or year 58 uh nagyalo in in tibetan um and you don't really need to say more about it, it it's so you know when someone says 58 everyone knows what they're referring to it's, it's so indelible i think uh in, in their minds uh it is the point of rupture in on those re- modern history it's not 1911 or you know it's not 1949 it's not 1966 when the cultural revolution was launched it's not 1978 when the reforms were launched in, in China, or whatever date we often use to chronicle Chinese history. And I think that's important. I think it helps underline how different um, those experiences with the Chinese state might be than, than other areas, and they have to be understood in their own, their own light. Um, and, and, and you're right that it has not gained much, much attention in scholarship, really, in any language. Um, and I hope my book does, you know, it helps to change that a little bit at least. Uh, the reasons that it has not are, are many. Um, for one, Amdo itself has not gotten much attention until very recently, as, as, I'll, as I'll talk about. Uh, in a sense, it's peripheralized in relationship to modern Chinese history, uh, but also to Tibetan history. Um, again, it doesn't matter which language you're looking at. It could be uh, Tibetan or Chinese or, or English or whatever the major books on Tibetan history, uh, again, in, in, in you know, again, in, in English, but also in other languages, uh, focus overwhelmingly on, on central Tibet. And as some of your listeners will know, but, but maybe many others will not, uh, sort of the, the Tibetan plateau is divided into three major ethnocultural regions, um, often called Utsang or central Tibet, Kham, and Omdo. And Omdo of course is what we're talking about. Uh, central Tibet is the area in, in the Himalaya, uh, you know, centered around Lhasa, in which the uh, the Dalai Lama's government ruled until 1959. And when the Chinese state uses the word Tibet or in Chinese Shizan, it refers only to this area. They're not talking about the Tibetan plateau uh, writ large. When Tibetans, however, talk about Tibet or, or Pu in, in, in Tibetan, and especially exiled Tibetans and, and their supporters, they were usually referring to the entirety of the Tibetan cultural war- world within China. So they include Kham, uh, which is mostly in. Western Sichuan today, but it's also in northern Yunnan and uh, southern Qinghai, and Amdo, uh, which is largely in Qinghai, but also in southern Gansu and northern northern um, um, Sichuan. Excuse me. Uh, so these areas, common Amdo, have always been sort of frontier regions. They've they've always had more influence and interaction with China, and in the case of Amdo, with also Mongolia and Central Asia, as I mentioned before. Uh, yet when when scholars and activists and just general observers um, often uh, talk about Tibetan history, whether they're doing this purposely or not, they try to, they sort of have it both ways in the, fa- in the sense that they often allude to all of ethnographic Tibet, sort of Tibet, this happened to Tibet, but they're really only discussing uh, central Tibet of the Dalai Lama. And this, this government of, in, in Lhasa never ruled Amdo and only ruled parts of Kham. Uh, and in fact, there was also a lot of, of of competition and 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 warfare between common and Central Tibet, in particular, over over these these issues of who would rule who. So, when the history of Tibet's encounter with the modern Chinese state is discussed, um, with with few exceptions, the authors are are usually talking about the Dalai Lama's government, and they're talking about its so-called de facto independence that it gained during the after the fall of the Qing Dynasty in 1911 12. Um, and then it's liberation or conquest, depending on how you want to look at it, by the uh, Chinese communists in 1951. And then finally, the Lhasa Rebellion in 1959, uh, after which the Dalai Lama fled into exile in, in India. The problem, as I've sort of suggested, is that Amdo had a unique history, right? Not only did it never was it never under the rule of this Lhasa-based government, um, but as I discussed in my book, it never enjoyed, for instance, this de facto independence during the Republican period. Instead, from the end of the Qing dynasty until 1949, it was under the often contested control of the so-called Ma family Muslim warlord clan based in Xining. Uh, so it's, again, its experiences were quite different and those differences have real consequences, I think, for how Amdo tibetans and others in the region uh, and especially the indigenous leaderships there interacted with the new regime when it came to power in 1949. Um, these people had tons of experience dealing with outside and were larger powers, and they, they were familiar with negotiating, compromising, leveraging, acquiescing, and, and what have you. Uh, things I hope, hope we'll probably come back to in, in a little bit. But to get back to your original question, Amdo gets left out of the national narrative of, 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 of uh, Tibetan, Tibet's national narrative, in, in my view. Um, this idea that Tibet was independent for a time, that it was, it was conquered by the Chinese communists, that it, it resisted, Uh, all these stories that so animates people to this day. Um, It's not necessarily the case for Kham so much because a straight line can sort of be drawn from the rebellion that began in Kham in 1956 to the Dalai Lama's escape uh, three years later. Um, So Kham does become part of this sort of national narrative. Um, In brief, Khampa rebels uh, and refugees after after rebelling fled to central Tibet. Um, This led to inflamed tensions in, in Lhasa, helping lead to an uprising there in March 1959 and then, and then the Dalai Lama's flight. Um, plus, it's also Kampa rebels that form the bulk of what becomes a CIA ba- uh, CIA-backed rebel force there. Uh, they're the ones that helped arrange the Dalai Lama's escape uh, into exile. They're the ones that were the bulk of, the, again, the, 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 the fighters that waged guerrilla war in, 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 in Tibet for a decade afterwards. So they're more prominently included in this story. Amdo, however, sort of gets left out. You know, there's a massive rebellion there in 1958, uh, but the connection to larger narratives are are more tenuous, um, especially because few uh, Amdo Tibetans that experienced the rebellion seem to have made it into exile to tell their story. Um, So there hasn't been much um, written about the Amdo rebellion um, to this point. Uh, Zhang Lin uh, Li has a chapter in her book about Amdo in 1958, which is quite helpful. But I think my book is probably the first one to really ground it in the context of events that occurred in OMDO uh, over the previous decade and, and 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 farther, as opposed to events that occurred, let's say, in Beijing and Lhasa, as many other uh, books sort of uh, focus on. Um, in short, there isn't much historiography of modern OMDO at, at all. Uh, this is beginning to change because of the people I mentioned earlier and others, uh, people like my advisor Gray Tuttle, It's also changing because of the proliferation of memory studies. So, you know, what I was talking about before, uh, broadly speaking, uh, scholars such as Lama Gap, Francoise Raban, Charlene Mackley, and others are exploring Omdo's recent past through uh, things like uh, oral histories, memoirs, and and what have you. Um, And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there's a lot of work being done by Omdo Tibetans and others in the region, mostly in unofficial venues and in some cases a great personal risk. Uh, for example, the author of one collection of oral histories about 1958, as actually was arrested and reportedly tortured in, in, in prison. Um, but as far as I, as I can tell, or a, there has not been uh, much traditional sort of historical archival or primary source based research on on recent Amdo history. Mine's probably uh, the first.
1: Thank you so much for providing that, you know, sort of really important, um, you know, contextualizing information for where the book sits, and I, you know, just a to gesture towards um, your soapbox that you talked about earlier about the teaching of modern Chinese history. Right? I think the importance of the year 1958 that really comes through in this book. Um, I think that very much speaks to the soapbox of so the you know, what dates are actually taught when we when modern Chinese history is taught, right, what areas are taught when modern Chinese history is taught, right, all of what you just said there, I think, really speaks um, to the importance and the significance of including uh, histories of areas like OMDO in that larger, um, the larger narrative of, you know, the important years, uh, what is happening um, in modern Chinese history. So thank you. Um, you talked there about, you know, the 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 violence of the rebellion really stands in contrast to what the Chinese Communist Party is trying to do, what they're aiming to do, right? And this is really speaks to the United Front. Um, And this is sort of, you know, this stands, this is the other part of the book that, you know, uh, the other core concept that runs through the book as a whole, um, in contrast really to the violence. Um, And the United Front is so key. It's the theoretical justification and bureaucratic method that the CCP are wielding in the Omdo region, uh, what they're using to bring about the CCP's main goal, which, as you say in the book, was not just state building, which presumably could have been accomplished through force alone, um, but also nation building, which required the construction of narratives and policies capable of convincing Omdo Tibetans of their membership in a wider political community. And I'm reading from the book there. Um, so what, you know, as this is so key, could you say a little bit about what the United Front is and you know why it is so very important in the official policies of the CCP in the 1950s?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, this really is a central assertion uh, of, of the book, this, this idea that they were trying to do something beyond just control, just beyond just to dominate. They were trying to, to build something. They were trying to transform something. Um, one of the assumptions made by by many uh, people when they look at uh, the Communist Party's efforts in Tibetan areas or other ethnocultural borderlands is to assume that's really a, a case of one state simply trying to dominate another. Uh, whatever word you want to use to describe that, some people call it imperialism. Sometimes people call it internal colonialism, uh, what have you. Uh, and that may have been that may be the end result. Uh, i I would not argue that, but I see no evidence. Uh, at least in the case of Amdo, that that was the intention in the way that the Communist Party understood its own presence in this area. That may not be much of a uh, of a of a you know pe- people who suffered because of of, of their of their, of their um, actions may not uh, find that very reassuring. But that's 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 another that's another um, point what i mean by that is that i don't see the ccp's designs in omdo as being a cynical bid for uh for domination again instead the party's goals were were transformative to bring omdo into inhabitants into the modern socialist uh multinational state or multi-minzu state multi-ethnic state however you want to tr- translate that term minzu which is so uh contested in china now i struggled how to frame frame this how to understand this how to understand an institution's you know uh, beliefs. How do how we how do we frame an institution's uh, efforts like this? And I settled on James Scott's idea of, of high modernism. This idea that uh, 20th century state builders of many straits came into these situations armed with these sort of hyper self sense of hyper sense excuse me uh, hyper self confidence that they were sort of engines of scientific progress and 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 they knew how to better other peoples or other environments. Uh, in ways that those people themselves did not. Now, let me emphatically state that this doesn't make it okay. This is not. I'm not. I'm not an apologist uh, for the CCP in Amdo or elsewhere. And I, hopefully, anyone that reads the book will 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 agree with that. Um, and as Scott describes more generally, the power dynamics, you know, in places like Amdo were such that representatives of of the party were able to impose their transformative de- demands on Tibetans and others um who despite claims to the contrary were, were not given a voice they were not given a choice and then when things went bad they bore the brunt of the cfcps i think he called hubris uh becoming victims of, of state violence an outcome that that, that scott warns about but, but getting to your question you know what was the united front and how did it work or or not work as uh, we can might say in in retrospect at least uh how does it fit in um what i was really fascinated to learn as i started researching uh for this book and, the, and then sort of putting it on paper is that when the party and army marched into omdo in 1949 a place that they really had no previous um um uh, they, they, they didn't have any presence in prior to 1949 they had very few friends they didn't have good information about this area it was pretty much um you know open terrain to some degree However, they were certain that Omdo and its inhabitants, and they didn't call it Omdo, of course, they called it Qinghai, for instance, and Gansu, that the, in, the residents of these places were part of a historical multinational China, multi ethnic China. This was never doubted in anything I've seen. But they were also equally certain that few of the people in Omdo were aware of this. And rather than ignore this reality, um, the party sought to locate the root cause of this. You know, why was there so much inter-ethnic tension? Why did local people not see themselves as part of China? And what they claimed to discover was that China was a a, a historical nation made of many different minzu, many different nationalities, but that's, this unity had been disrupted by what it refers to as Great Han Chauvinism. In other words, the Han majority and the, the various governments that represented that majority had for many decades and many centuries exploited what they now called minority nationalities, uh, therefore damaging their economic and cultural development, but also creating this inter-ethnic animosity, this, this, this hatred between, let's say, Tibetans, or, or maybe distrust between Tibetans and, and, and Han, for example. And the way to, to heal this divide, the party uh, leaders uh, decided, uh, was therefore to get rid of Han discrimination and exploitation. You know, this actually kind of made sense. Um, it wasn't to attack uh, local nationalism, as they called it. It wasn't to attack uh, Tibetans for not wanting to be part of China. It was to attack the root cause, which was this, this, this ethnic exploitation. Um, and you could do that through uh, promises and then following through on those promises of equality, autonomy, protecting local religion and culture and language. Through economic development, by frankly showing that you were a different type of Han Chinese than those that had exploited places like Omdo in the past. Now, how do you then implement these these you know what they consider to be progressive policies? Of, of essentially, of reproachment in some ways, uh, if these local people didn't trust you, uh, and there's a lot of evidence that many of them didn't trust the party when it came into Omdo, and I think that's probably understandable. In fact, there was fairly widespread armed resistance um, throughout. Large swaths of Amdo uh, in the early 1950s. So, what do you do? Uh, well, what the party tried to do is is, is to implement these policies through a group, uh, through sort of, well, or implement the strategy, let's say, through a group of policies that can be lumped together as as the United Front. Now, I think a lot of people are familiar with the concept of the United Front, perhaps at least if they've studied Chinese history. Uh, many listeners will have heard of the United Front recently um, as it's been making headlines as the agency or, or perhaps strategy that promotes Chinese interests abroad through sof- such soft power instruments as these Confucius Institutes that have, again, uh, caused so much concern on, in certain, in certain um, um, corners, these, these uh, institutes that are placed on college campuses around the world and, and the pushback against them that we've seen in the last couple of years. But also many people will be familiar with the uh, the two United Front alliances that were struck between the CCP and the Kuomintang uh, in the first half of the 20th century, the first in the 1920s, which led to the Kuomintang's rise to power and almost the end of the CCP when the Kuomintang turned on it. And again, when they joined forces in the so-called Patriotic United Front against the Japanese in the 1930, in nineteen excuse me, after 1937. Um However, how and why the United Front operated inside China during the Maoist period really has been woefully understudied. Uh, and in many ways, as you point out, that's what the book is about, or at least one aspect of, of how this worked. Uh, if the book had a subtitle, it doesn't, the United Front would probably be part of, be a part of it somewhere. So then that was pretty wordy. But what is the United Front uh, in Omdo uh, and elsewhere? In short, it's the rationale for allying with non-communist or non-proletarian elements in pursuit of larger goals. Uh, And in this case, after 1949, uh, it was the goal of getting the vital support of important non-party elements of Chinese society, or in this case, you know, Tibetan society, and incorporating them into this new nation. Uh, Although the concept was first introduced by Lenin and Comintern around 1920, it becomes part of the of the Chinese revolutionary tradition over the following decades and gets theorized and systematized under Mao's uh, famous theory of the new of new de- excuse me of new democracy. Let me have a drink here. Um, in a nutshell, new democracy argues that even after the socialist revolution uh, is successful, there's going to be a transitional period of indefinite length during which socialism, capitalism, feudalism will all intermingle, will all coexist. Uh, And during this period, the United Front should make United Front alliances with certain uh, interest groups, uh, most famously intellectuals and entrepreneurs, um, but also others such as uh, religious groups and leaders of minority nationalities. Uh, And these latter two groups really haven't been studied as much as the, 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 the two former ones. So in OMDO, the United Front kind of just, you know, simply put, refers to a transitional period of indeterminate length during which class struggle would be de-emphasized in favor of forming these alliances with the region's uh, pre-existing religious and secular leadership. And these people would be brought into the system as leaders of these newly formed autonomous administrations, such as prefectures and counties and districts. And the idea was that through the charisma and authority of these people, uh, the party would be able to begin to implement its progressive policies, it would begin to make direct connections with the, the masses themselves, and eventually the fruits of these policies would convince the masses that they should ask for democratic reforms, which refer, refers to the full political, full political integration of this region, as well as for socialist transformation or, or collectivization. Um, now, again, many or maybe most observers have claimed the United Front was simply a smokescreen or, or a ruse or something, <clears throat> sort of a stalling tactic used by the CCP until it was in position to implement uh, its relatively radical agenda, by, by, by force, probably. And I think that seems to be the case if you start in 1958 and work backwards. Uh, but if you, the, the many, many documents I have seen give no indication that that, that was the case. Instead, I argue the United States was considered a transformative methodology of state and nation building, one that promised gradual, voluntary, organic, and peaceful transition. Um, And those are all sort of quote words, right? These are all words that that were being used in in internal communications. It was considered by its advocates, at least, to be a legitimate progressive alternative to strategies of nation building and the treatment of minority populations in, in, in the capitalist Western nations. Or to put it another way, <clears throat> excuse me. To put it another way, it was imagined, imagined as a non-exploitative mechanism to gradually and voluntarily reunify the historical Chinese nation, just as the PLA had reconstructed the historical Chinese state, and, and therefore paved the way to a full and peaceful uh, socialist transformation. Um, as Scott warns, however, these sch- these schemes often go tragically awry. I think that's how he puts it. And uh, it certainly does go awry in Amdo, as we're we're finding out.
1: Mm-hmm. And you, you, I think you're absolutely right to mention the, you know, the un. You, you said that you know some people might uh, not be not be into, you know, might not take comfort in this. Uh, but the, you know, th- when you're talking about the fact that you don't see, you know, any sort of cynicism in the documents, you don't see any sort of, you know. Um, indication that the United Front is in any way a front uh, in the documents that you're looking at and you sort of give readers a sense of this I think most clearly when you're talking about how the CCP responds to the failures of its plans right almost every time something doesn't go quite right a, you know a campaign doesn't go quite right uh, a summit doesn't you know get the sort of response they want a friendship meeting isn't you know doesn't go very well nobody participates. In all of these moments when you talk through what the documents say about, you know, the failure, it is really the, it it always comes back to Han Chauvinism. They always, at least from what I can remember, return to we must do better. We must engage better. This is our fault. It is not the fault of people. You know, they never really... blame anybody um any indigenous tibetan peoples on the ground it is always the fault of the party for not doing better for not rolling out the propaganda better for not rolling out um campaigns better right and i think that's really where you see this sort of un um really play out is in these moments of failure and there are certainly a lot of moments of failure uh because the united front even though they have this you know this idea um quite you know, scientific, quite grounded in um, all of these um, very progressive ways of thinking, it doesn't really go very well, um, as you sort of pointed out, because the CCP really have no you know, own presence in OMDO. There's no structures, there's no administration, there's nothing um, there. They have to build it all. And in building, they are really relying on people who are already there. Um, you know, Local elites who Served as middlemen, you know, maybe in the in the Qing and during the ma family warlord period. you know, they're relying on people who've worked for other administrations to put it um to put it that way when um, these areas were still within an empire, um you know, a, a stated uh, named empire. Um, and the role that Tibetan elites are playing in the CCP administration, is a really interesting one I've already you know talked we've already talked a little bit about how you are able to sort of um, get at these individuals through the sources that you're using um because they're operating um within this logic of empire and you know I, again this is really I think one of the strengths of the book and that you know it is told from the perspective of the party state and told using sources of the party state but this is not a book of faceless nameless prc cadres this is a book yes with PRC cadres, but many are named, and there are, of course, Tibetan elites. So are there any, you know, local leaders whose careers or whose histories you want to sort of highlight here, who are acting as these actors, you know, in the dynamics of empire in their participation with the CCP?
0: Sure. I mean, there, there's a lot of them, that, and <laughs> and thank you. I, I agree that one of the things that I really... Um, was pleased with is that this is a story of of, of people and communities, um, and not just mm-hmm. sort of bigger uh, structural issues. and we see how they they develop. and unfortunately, the the, the bad ends that come to many of them uh, towards towards the the end. I should also mention that um, and he and did a great job of sort of uh, encapsulating some of the things I was talking about with um, the way that I see the party operating during this period um that um there's a lot of seems to be a lot of resistance these united Front policies among the grassroots cadres so when i say that this is the uh way things were supposed to be done that doesn't mean that everybody bought in doesn't mean that everybody believed in it but i do believe it was the institutional ethos of the party throughout the 1950s mm-hmm. and i think that that's important um so either yeah, there are a lot of fascinating people to choose from um yeah, you know, I'm tempted to talk about Wagya, for instance. That he's the if there's if there's a protagonist in the book, it's probably him. He's the um the core United Front figure in Zeku, and a lot of the policies are going to go through him. Uh, in the, in the in the in the in the 50s, but also, uh, we get to know him in the 1930s and 40s as he dealt with the Mabu government before. Um, but instead, I'm going to highlight a man named Uh, uh Wang Chun dundrup who also plays a relatively prominent role. Um. He was the headman of the Nangra chiefdom. Uh, it's in present-day uh, Jenja County, excuse me, um, which is a couple of, of counties north of, of Zeku, if anyone's got their map handy. Um, and, and when the CCP sources talk about how exploitative the Ma regime was, and it, it certainly could be, uh, one of the examples that they often use is to highlight this, this confrontation or a confrontation that occurs between the Ma's and the Nangra in the early 1930s, I think there was a, uh, you know, the details aren't that important, I guess. It was essentially a tax dispute um, from what I can gather. Uh, I think the the Maas attacked the Nanga region three times and, and all three times they were sort of repulsed, but after heavy losses on both sides. And what's interesting to me is that the dispute ultimately gets settled through what I would consider a reversion to imperial practice, as you sort of were pointing out. Uh, it gets settled through negotiation brokered by an important Nyingma Lama, a, 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 a Lama from the Nyingma tradition, a guy named, or I shouldn't call him a guy probably, a man named Gurong Yelze, and a powerful secular headman from uh, from uh, uh, the region around Qinghai Lake, uh, Gantze um, And we're, we're told that Wangchen Dundrup and mabufang meet, I believe, in Xining, and they seal a deal between the two by pledging an oath of brotherhood. I think it might have been a blood oath, if I remember right. And uh, in, in, in short, the Nangra headman joins Mahbufeng's government as an advisor, um, supposedly, as a uh, military commander, and as the government head of the Nangra region. Uh, and he even, I think, joins the Kuomintang, as many of these, uh, these, these Tibetan leaders did in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Uh, now, these positions were probably mostly not particularly substantive. Uh, his military command was, was almost certainly over his own forces. Uh, he already ruled Nangra. So um, essentially, it was it, 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 this was a, a replication to some degree of how uh, authority often worked during the imperial period under the Qing dynasty and previous, in which uh, you had reciprocal gestures between local elites and the imperial state that both acknowledged the majesty of the imperial state and its sovereignty over this area while reinforcing the local prestige and, and rule of, of, of local figures like Wanchin Dundrup. And similar things were happening all over Amdo during the 1930s and 40s uh, with the mob regime. Now, 20 years later, when the CCP marches into OMDO, uh, all these same people had to figure out what to do. They had to make decisions. Should they side with, Should you know, the CCP was allowing people to come sort of, uh, you know, pledge their, 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 their oath or their, their loyalty to the new state. Uh, And there were also Mabufeng rebels uh, out there that that these local leaders could choose to join as well, if they they so chose. Um, And many chose the former, and some chose the latter. Wang Dundrup was among those that took part in a series of uprisings, I briefly referenced them before, uh, that last between 1949 and summer of 1953. Sometimes is referred to as the last uh, battles of the Chinese Civil War in in a couple of, of documents. Um, And in fact, Wanchen Dundrup's base area, which was pretty well protected, it was on the southern part of the uh, bank of the Yellow River, on a hilly region, a forest region, it becomes known as Little Taiwan, and quickly becomes a haven for other rebels, mostly Hui Muslim rebels, who were being flushed out of other bases elsewhere in in northeast Qinghai. Uh, So essentially, this gives lie to the CCP's uh, assumptions about ethnic unity and inter-ethnic hatred uh, that they came into the region with. Uh, it was a much more complex situation than, than, than they had imagined. And there's a lot more to say about the story, such as how the CCP treated Tibetan and Muslim rebels differently. Um, and what it says about, again, these, these presumptions about on those political and social landscape. But to stick with, you, with your question, uh, the CCP actually spent a year and a half negotiating with Wang Chun Dundrup rather, rather than uh, 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 you know, launching a military assault. In the process, they sent 17 separate delegations into the region to try to win him mm-hmm. over. These were often led by United Front figures, uh, including these same two guys that had negotiated Munchen Dundrup's uh, uh, alliance with Mabufeng 30, uh, 20 years earlier. Um, and now, to be fair, he doesn't actually come over to the communists until they do launch a massive military assault, but even then, the CCP gives him the opportunity to surrender, to quote-unquote return to the people, which he does, He's made head of a new county uh, based around Nangra and has his traditional titles reconfirmed. He's feted in Xining and Lanzhou. And I think, you know, essentially what he from his perspective, he's trying to see if he can carve out some of this autonomous space that um, had existed in Omdo in between empire and local societies for so long. But was was shrinking and doing the best he could, uh, making rational decisions based on what he knew uh, on how to best um, preserve his position, but also the relative autonomy of, of, of his community. Now, um, you know, I don't think he, you know, these, these were these were astute, smart people, I, I believe. And I'm sure he re- realized the CCP was a different institution than those that he had encountered in the past, <clears throat> that never before had uh, Omdo faced such a powerful, but also transformative institution. Um, nonetheless, he was doing the best he could within limited um, um, possibilities perhaps now like most of his cohort uh, the other you know United front figures that would join the Communist Party in and after 1949, he finds that out about uh, the real demands of the CCP in, in 1958. watching um, Dundrup himself reportedly didn't join the uprising uh, but many in his chiefdom did. Uh, regardless, Wanchin Dundrup was deposed, he was thrown in jail, uh, he, and, and within a year he was dead, a, a, a shade that he fared with so many other members of, of the indigenous leadership, uh, who from really within a blink of an eye went from being United Front representatives, patriots, to counter-revolutionaries. Uh, so the way I see people like Wanchen Dundrup is that they represent sort of the struggle to preserve what might, we might call imperial or frontier space against the encroaching demands of the nation state. And this it doesn't begin in 1949. It begins earlier under Ma Bufeng. Uh, but during that period, because of the um, relative lack of capacity of the Ma regime, he, he was able to, 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 to maintain that space in the 1930s. And even in the ni- early 1950s under the United Front, he was as well. But the rebellion really marks the closing of that, of that space and the sort of the forced integration of the Tibetan Plateau. Into this this modern, consolidated, transformative, and authoritarian state.
1: You mentioned that the CCP sent seventeen delegations to try to court him.
0: I believe so. I hope I'm right about that. Wow. Certainly, certainly a lot.
1: No, I mean that's sound, That sounds absolutely that sounds <laughs> right to me. In the sense that you know, so much of the first part of the book is really committee meetings and friendship summits and delegations and right. you know, general slow, gradual moves. Um, you have you know the the episode of the 17 delegations that you just mentioned you have discussion of um, how zakukanti how you know the where the administrative seat is chosen how its name is chosen mm-hmm. and all of these moments are just wrapped in negotiations and meetings um, very often very ill-attended meetings I That's, should add you know you talked about uh, resistance mm-hmm. um and of course that is so prominent in the book, but you also have sort of silent resistant, right? And there are so many instances where meetings are just not attended that it starts to uh, gl- you know, loom large in the mind of at least this reader, um, how many people are not attending meetings. Um, but so much of this takes place in the very first part of the book. So chapters one to four, it really yeah. is all meetings. Um, and then uh, in chapter five, things sort of change uh, when class analysis and proto-collectivization really come to the grasslands of Omdo. And you talked about you know chap- um, 1958 being a break moment, but this moment in 1955 is also a bit of a break. This is sort of when you talk about it being a moment where contradictions embedded in both the ideology of the United Front and the operating mechanisms of the Communist Party are exposed. Could you just say a little bit about this, about you know what happens when mm-hmm. Uh, collectivization and proto collectivization come to Amdo, and how that really severs things.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, hopefully the first four chapters have more than just meetings. But um, you know, it doesn't sound like a very exciting, exciting read. I, I promise it's a little better than that. Um, yeah, I mean, 1955 into 1956 is, is some people, as many people, hopefully will, will know, is the the high tide of socialist transformation, um, and it does come to effect um, of the Amdo region. Um, I see these contradictions operating, I guess, on, 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 on several intertwined levels, but they all have to do with these grossly unequal or, uh, yeah, grossly unequal power relationships that exist between the party state and, and, and on the society, as well as the tensions between a, a system that combines centralized political and coercive power, while also demanding active participation and claiming to want consultation from that society. um, this meant that despite promises that the United Front would remain intact and socialist transformation would be delayed until the masses again demanded it, the decision-making was really always in the hand of, of party leaders. It really never was in the hands of anybody else. Uh, this probably isn't surprising to, to students of, of modern China. Um, and that United Front promises were only good so long as revolutionary impatience did not overwhelm this commitment to gradualism. And it starts to do so in 1955, although they do pull back before the the tidal wave happens in, in 1958. Now, of course, it, it, in a very broad sense, these tensions are not unique to to Amdo or to Tibetan regions or to ethnocultural borderlands. They're sort of baked into Maoist China's in, in, more more broadly. But I do think you can't ignore the ethnic element here of an overwhelmingly Han Chinese Communist Party and the power that it it, it held, and actually the party the power that it still holds over vul, vul, uh, vulnerable non-Han communities, like you see in Amdo. Um, and this can, you know, this can be seen in, in many examples throughout the books and anecdotes I try to bring to the fore. Um, some of them are seemingly quite minor, and others are matters of life and, and, and death. Uh, you name the, you, you mentioned the naming of Zeku County or Zekok in in in, uh, in Tibetan in 1953, and I think it's a great example of what would, you know seemed to be a relatively inconsequential decision, but one that sort of gives lie to the the, the the entire endeavor or at least uncover some of these embedded um, uh, contradictions that that we were talking about. In short, uh, Zeku County never existed before 1953 uh, when it was willed into being really unbe- by by the party itself, no one else. So one of the things that needed to happen when it was established or right before it was established was that it needed a name, right? It didn't have one. So at one of these many meetings you you, you, you allude to, um, <laughs> local Tibetan leaders were, were expected, you know, one of, the, one of these meetings, these local leaders were expected to attend and one that was very poorly attended, you know, as it were. Uh, party leader, uh, Du An at the time, he proposed that the name should be Zeku. And for whatever reason, uh, the gathered leaders disagreed. Um, du insisted. Uh, Chairman Du said that Zeku County, Meant something or referred something uh, referred to something like Mao's treasure house and, and, and therefore uh, it was it's a good name, and we're told that the headmen were finally convinced by this argument, and they were all happy to have Zeku County as a as the name of the county. The truth is that the name had been chosen at least months earlier uh, by Qinghai's leadership, and actually it, 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 so in other words, there were never really was any possibility of genuine local decision making or even substantive input. Um, the United Front work was all supposed to be implemented through a dialectical process that they referred to as consultation and persuasion. Uh, but as in the, the, the mass line, which many people uh, perhaps are familiar with, um, consultation was not meant to give space for a real give and take of ideas. It was geared to produce a consensus uh, for the party's predetermined objectives, as you can see with the, the county seats name. I mean, if they couldn't bend a little bit on the an inconsequential issue like the name of, of what's supposed to be an autonomous county, they certainly weren't going to for larger larger issues, uh, especially when higher-ups began demanding results, as they did during the high tide of, of socialist transformation. And, and, and we see this over and over again in the book. A related issue is that these grassroots cadres that were sent to places like Zeku, and they probably weren't the highest quality cadres in some cases, uh, being sent to a uh, a place that probably didn't have particularly good prospects for advancement, uh, they were meant to investigate and implement policies, uh investigate uh circumstances, conditions, and implement policies based on what the party used, you know, we call concrete conditions that existed in these in these areas. However, they weren't given any actual space to innovate based on these experiences or these investigations. Instead, policies would be formulated above and sent downward for implementation. And as I think you pointed out earlier um, uh, in in our talk, over and over, we see that cadres are are, are reprimanded by their superiors, on the one hand, for not understanding the concrete conditions that existed in these areas, while failing to implement policies that are directed from above. So they really can't win. And and, and as you mentioned, many of the the criticisms were that this was because of Han Chauvinism, that they continued to... Uh, um, demonstrate. Uh, At the same time, these cadres needed to get results. But they were told that they could only get these results through voluntary buy-in from local communities. They could not use coercion. At the same time, no contingency is available to them if Tibetans refused, if it didn't work, if the policies weren't agreed to. For instance, paying taxes. Nobody wants to pay taxes. You're supposed to be able to convince Tibetans to pay taxes by telling them how patriotic it is and how it's going to help them in the long run. Well, that's great, but what if they don't? What if they don't do it? And they didn't, right? They often cheated on their taxes or they misrepresented their their their, their herds. Now, if these policies failed, uh, it wasn't the fault of the policy as a rule, right? But it was the fault of the implementation. And as you, again, mentioned earlier on, if local Tibetans resisted or if they, uh, um, you know, at least in the earlier years, this was seen as a sign of poor propaganda work by local cadre, cadres, not, by, not as... Uh, 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 a, a sort of criminality on the part of, of, the, of the Tibetans in the area. Now, all this is especially dangerous given the dynamics that existed in Maoist China, where making leftist mistakes or being too revolutionary was a far less dangerous thing to do if you're a, a local cadre, not understanding what you're supposed to do on the edges of the Tibetan plateau, than making a rightist mistake. A right, rightist mistake was being too conservative or maybe even reactionary. And so, when you combine with this, this with frustration uh, that many of these people seem to express for having to sort of coddle these class enemies, these these indigenous elites, I think you can say that many cadres were sort of bureaucratically conditioned and perhaps personally inclined uh, to report to their, their their superiors that the masses were ready for democratic and social, socialist reforms when they probably were not. And you see this happening in 1955. Uh, for instance, as, as you alluded to, with the uh, high tide of socialist transformation and the initial efforts at collectivization. And then lastly, and, and most obviously perhaps, is that the United Front itself relies on the cooperation of local elites essentially to create conditions for their ultimate elimination as a class, right? Uh, in early years when elite obstruction was was detected, uh, or a word they often use is that they showed anxieties towards uh, party policies, uh, this was blamed, again, on residual effects of Han chauvinism. And time and time again, local cadres were told that these people had had to be reformed through education and propaganda, not through compulsion, and, and, and certainly not through, through violence. Um, and this would apply to everything from the relatively mundane, for instance, not showing up to one of these many meetings that, that you talked about, to, to these more extreme uh, examples, such as tax evasion and even rebellion, as in the case of Bunchen Dundrup. Uh, Again, they weren't treated as criminal cases, but matters of of education um, and uh, political uh, uh, understanding. But as the atmosphere becomes more radical after 1955 and calls for collectivization, which were muted at first, become louder and louder, any setbacks were increasingly seen or uh, within a prism of class struggle, as a class dimension was given to them. Uh, They were no longer excused as the residual effects of Han Chauvinism, but as expressions of, of class struggle. And then when the Great Leap Forward breaks out in 1958, suddenly this local nationalism uh, replaces Han Chauvinism as the primary impediment to everything the party was trying to do, uh, essentially as a counter-revolutionary crime. Uh, and again, on the United Front, representatives were therefore transformed uh, overnight into counter-revolutionaries.
1: Absolutely. And I think you have you've very wonderfully there, you know, summarized the sort of the powder keg that exists in the area in 1958, right? You talked about, you know, um, what what we see in between 1955 and 1958 is, as you've just mentioned, more investigations. Cadres go in to f- try to figure out why co- the collectivization hasn't worked so well. Um, they make some recommendations. And then, you know, the situation in China as a whole changes. And suddenly collectivization is really Wholeheartedly, frantically embraced. I mean, you have some. You, you talk about the targets that were set and the plans that were were drawn up, and they are for this. They are, like, quite frankly, absolutely bananas. I mean, you talk about uh, provincial leaders revising their plans for collectivization. They, you know, have some ideas that certain areas are going to be collectivized by the end of the year, and then a month later, the plans are that collectivization is going to be completed in a month. Um, They are absurd. Mm -hmm. And in response to that, then, you have, um, there is violent resistance. And in response to that, the CCP violently suppresses the uprisings and then tries to break the political authority and psychological hold of Amdo's pre-existing leadership. And this is really the rebellion. And... The aftermath of this, I think, though, is just as important because you talk about how the violence that the party brings to Amdo really severed the party's you know, narrative of national integration. It really um, completely uh, undercuts the United Front. And at least some of that continued severing comes from the CCP's inability to find any way to address the violence that it doled out and participated in. Right. And we sort of see this at the end of the book, and the party really flip-flops back and forth and you know violently with, with devastating um, consequences for individuals, I should say. but this the final chapter is almost you get whiplash by, by just following the way that individuals are rehabilitated and then targeted and then in some cases rehabilitated again. And you note that the Amdo rebellion is still considered an armed counter-revolutionary rebellion, even while a number of omdo's leaders, were you know cleared of any wrongdoing, even if those wrongdoings were posthumously mm-hmm. um, or posthumously done. So, can you just speak to the the you know the real inability of the CCP to deal with the violence? Of sure.
0: The, um, of um, this y- yeah. First of all, just just to underline that the the levels of violence were were extreme, and I won't go into details. So I guess that's what the book's for. Um, but for instance, um, we're talking about tens of thousands of people being arrested, many, many thousands, perhaps 20,000 being killed. Um, you know, and and these numbers, uh, come from, from, from CCP sources, right? They, they, they come from, uh, often internal sources. Um, and the numbers themselves can't really be, um, confirmed, but I think you get an impression, uh, of, of the, the, the levels of violence. You you get to, you, you, you get an idea of how much violence was committed, um, against a relatively small population in, in this region. And it wasn't just, Tibetans took the, the bulk of it, but it wasn't just Tibetans. Mongols, Salar, Hui, and others also um, were, were victims. And in fact, the, um, the party secretary who was sent in in 1962, 63, to sort of clean up the mess, um, would, would say that unforgivable crimes had been committed, uh, including indiscriminately killing prisoners, uh, arresting 68,000 people, I think they talk about 18,000 deaths in this in jail or labor camps alone. Uh, so again, the numbers can be contested, but we know that there was a, a vast, a, a enormous amount of violence, and this doesn't include the the terrible tragedy of the Great Leap Forward in this area, which was absolutely devastating in terms of the levels of starvation that we that we see. Um, as far as your, your your question goes about how the CCP's tried to sort of deal with this memory of this violence or not deal with it. Um, again, the Ando Rebellion really is this signature moment in in, in the region's history. Um, you know, everybody that lived through this period would have known people that were killed or imprisoned, and probably they would know many people that were, that were killed or imprisoned. And you know, you, you hear stories about you know no men being in in these villages or in these encampments in the uh, in the aftermath of of 1958. Um, you know, so this. You, so, how does the party want to want to try to to, to come to terms with this past? Um, uh, is, is is the subject of the last chapter, and essentially, what I talk about is is the the immediate post Mao period, uh, when you have this new regime led by Deng Xiaoping trying to um, sort of bolster its legitimacy after the the chaos of the Cultural Revolution, for example, um, and you know one of the first tasks that this that this regime uh, tried to tried to accomplish was to um, shore up that legitimacy across China essentially by attending to the damage that would have been committed during the the, the great campaigns of, of the Maoist period. Um, So the cultural revolution very famously was declared to be a a great catastrophe. Um, I'm sure most people know this. Most of the people that had been, that were were victims of the cultural revolution were rehabilitated. Most of the people that were um, let's say protagonists uh, were also left, let off the hook. Um, and the Gang of Four sort of stood in for the responsibilities of, of millions of people and millions of crimes uh, during the period. Um, a similar tactic, at least on the surface, was tried for Amdo for and the Amdo Rebellion. Basically, uh, all the pre-1949 elites, these United Front figures I've talked about, were rehabilitated and declared once again to be patriotic figures, as you, as you mentioned. And, and, and many of these people did have to have this uh, this happen to them posthumously, as you point out, such as Wangchen Dondrup. Uh, and at the same time, whoops! At the same time, many of the promises made to minority nationality people during the 1950s were were reaffirmed, um, and eventually, as I show, the rehabilitations were extended to to ordinary Tibetans and other people imprisoned or killed during the uprising. Until basically, other than a couple of very insignificant figures or relatively insignificant figures. No one is left shouldering the responsibility for the rebellion. So in a way, they tried to treat it like the Cultural Revolution more broadly, uh, but with a significant uh, a difference or two. Uh, first of all, the while the vast majority of people that have been accused of participating in the rebellion have been were exonerated, uh, the verdict on the rebellion itself was not. Uh, it was not reversed. It remains a counter-revolutionary armed rebellion. And no one has been punished for the ways in which the pacification campaign was was implemented, even though it was admitted uh, that it targeted people more or less indiscriminately. So you have a verdict that generates many victims, but no real perpetrators. You have mass rehabilitation, but I think you can say no uh, accountability for the crimes that were committed during the, the time. I think more to the point is that it doesn't resolve the central problems that the party had been trying to resolve since the 1950s, the reason the United Front was implemented in the first place. How do you transform what had been a a, a culturally alien imperial borderland into part of this this new uh, national body, to this nation state? Now, the jury is certainly still out on how effective the party's uh, cultural revolution verdict has performed among the Han Chinese majority. Um, you know, it's not clear that it has been as successful, as, as maybe uh, some people have argued. Uh, but the one thing it didn't need to do, and I think this is important, among the Han majority, is sort of shore up the legitimacy of the nation itself, right? It had to shore up the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. But Han Chinese people, for the most part, believed that the nation was a thing that they belonged to. I would, I would imagine. I, w- I would argue, this is not the case uh, in, in Amdo. Um, in other words the Chinese state in severing this United Front policy, this narrative of national unity, this, this, this mechanism to, to reaching this, this goal, uh, they haven't been able to replace that with a narrative that's, that explains to Tibetans uh, in Amdo and elsewhere, their stake in the Chinese dominated nation. Um, and having absolved people for participating in the rebellion, uh, that, that doesn't accomplish that task. And it doesn't erase the memory of the of the massive state violence that was committed in 1958, but also afterwards. Right, the violence did not stop in, in Tibetan areas in 1958 or 1960 or 1961, but to various degrees, it's been ongoing ever since. Um, and and we know that the memory of of Amdo in 1958 is alive. We know that it serves as a as a counter narrative, a counter example to the Chinese um, state's um, Um, various efforts to integrate this region, such as through economic development or what have you, uh, because people talk about it in private spaces, among trusted friends. Um, It's a subject of unofficial histories. It's a subject of memoirs, poetry, novels, for example. So it still does, I think, serve as this counterbalance, this counter-narrative, this counter-claim against the claims of legitimacy and international unity or multinational unity that the the state uh, pretends to.
1: And we definitely see that, you know, the, that inability reflected in chapter eight. And I mean, certainly, certainly in the um, final part of the book, which as you you sort of started us along that path in your, in, in your discussion of the immediate aftermath there, right? But you end the book with a note about empire and nation. And this sort of, I think, very easily brings the story um, and the resonance of the story to the present day, you know, uh, to the fore. Um, you end with The last line, to me at least, is a very important one. Um, It reads, If in the 21st century many Tibetan Uyghurs and other minority nationalities and their supporters consider the PRC to be an empire, this may not be a confirmation of empire so much as evidence of the failure of seven decades of nation building. And what this line really highlights to me and, you know, why I found it so important is the fact that while the story that this book and that you're telling here Is one of the Amdo region. The outlines of that story are certainly not unique to this region alone, and it's not a story that ends, um, as you've pointed out, in the 1950s. Um, Mm -hmm. So, as sort of, we're coming to the end of this book in our conversation. Could you? I know this is a broad question, um, but you know what. what are you hoping in the book really speaks to the present day, and what you know to you is the most um, useful part of the book to the present um, day, where we sit in early September, twenty twenty, yeah. to just sort of timestamp this.
0: Yeah, well, we we I think we 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 really sit in a, in a pivotal moment, particularly in China's dealings with its ethnocultural um, borderlands. We know what's going on in Xinjiang today, but also in place you know, in Tibet for sure, and I think we can extend that to to places like Hong Kong in a slightly altered uh, way. So, uh, you know, again, the, the the word empire in the course of the 20th century really has come to be, come, uh, come to be almost inseparably connected to ideas of violence, exploitation, illegitimacy. And that, that, that's all fine. Uh, my, my goal is not to rehabilitate empire, so to speak. But I did want to remind readers that uh, the modern incorporative nation state that emerges in opposition to empire makes transformative demands of its citizens that go far and beyond those that were made by traditional empires. You know, again, empires tend to rule multiple diverse domains uh, indirectly and separately from one another, while the consolidated nation state uh, demands levels of homogeneity and participation and loyalty that their imperial predecessors probably couldn't have mat- imagined. So that's all to say that many people on the edges of the massive state now known as the People's Republic of China, as well as their supporters, uh, often accuse China of being an empire. But I I would argue that China is attempting something that the imperial state never tried to do, not just to control these areas, but to transform them into, again, component parts of this new uh, particular and maybe uh, peculiar uh, nation state of of China. So the fact that 70 years after liberation, the process of incorporation remains incomplete, um, and that has led to the state implementing increasingly coercive means to govern these regions, regions like Tibet, especially Xinjiang, again, is not confirmation of empire so much as as it is proof that seven day, decades of nation building have failed. So you know, nation building's not hard. It, it, it's not easy. It's hard, and there probably is no magic bullet as as Mao had. I don't think we mentioned this, but that's what he referred to the United Front as uh, many years previously. Uh, especially in regions that historically, culturally, and linguistically have been so different from the core area that's trying to do the the transformation. Um, it's going to involve an, it, 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 massive imbalances of power and demands for unidirectional you know, acculturation, I think. And we see this in Tibet. We see this in Xinjiang today. Uh, but again, even in Hong Kong, where the majority considered itself to be ethnically Chinese, but they have a very different historical experience. They have different cultural uh, language, aspirations, and visions of what the nation should be and can be that arguably set it apart from uh, that which emanates out of out of the capital, out of Beijing. Um, so sort of to wind this, this up, you know, uh, it, it takes more than just institutions uh, to build a nation. It takes more than armies and roads and schools and borders and these sorts of things. But to, to, to belabor this point, it takes narratives that can convince people of their stake in the larger political community. Uh, and I think the party once understood this, um, that generally speaking, uh, nation building can't be accomplished through coercion, through force at least not in the short term, but maybe not in the medium or long term either, as we see in places like Tibet. We're almost exactly 60 years after the Am- Amdo Rebellion, uh, or is it 50? I can't do the math. Uh, in 2008, another large wave of popular protests, really a rebellion, swept across the, the plateau, followed by over 150 self-immolations uh, to uh, to, pr- to protest Chinese rule. <clears throat> Again, party leaders, I think, once understood uh, this and therefore adapted these imperial-style policies, the United Front, as a way to convince Tibetans of their stake in the multicultural Chinese nation. Uh, and again, I don't know if this could have worked, but when revolutionary impatience outstrips of these United Front promises of gradual and voluntary transformation, you know it, it turns to coercion. <laughs> and it's that memory of that violence that continues to cloud the state's nation-building efforts to this day. So while this Although this might be a subject for another day or, or probably for somebody that is uh, more fully uh, an expert on, on this particular uh, topic, my concern is that since the Tibetan uprising in 2008 and the inter-ethnic riots in, in Xinjiang the following year, the party leadership, especially after uh, Xi Jinping took power, has made sort of a calculated judgment to elevate Han ethno-nationalism over what we might think of as traditional CCP appeals to multi-ethnic unity. Uh, Or to put it another way, um, given the horrendous violence that's being committed against Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang today, but also against Tibetans, the recent news out of Inner Mongolia that they are shelving Mongol language education in favor of of Chinese language instruction, as was previously done in in both Tibet and Xinjiang. And I think even uh, in light of recent moves to not just incorporate Hong Kong, but I think to assimilate it and to do it through coercion, I think all this suggests that nation building as it once was understood uh, in China might not be the goal of, of Xi Jinping and the party leadership today. And I think that's something that we should all be very concerned about. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much for raising um, those concerns um, here. And I mean, I think your book as a whole is a, a I mean, I, th- I think of the book as, a, as, you know, telling a tragedy, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much, you know, a story of failure, as you pointed out, it's the failure to um, you know, who, again, as you said, who knows if it would have worked or not, but the failure to, you know, continue with the united front and to instead leave demands uncompleted, leave transformations uncompleted. And, you know, the book really, and the present day really stands as testament to what happens when, you know, that that process is never, is never done. So thank you for that. Um, thank you. And as you might know, Benno, when we sort of, you know, finish up here, we usually ask guests to talk about what they're working on next. And what your your next project, um, at least one of your next projects that just came out is very much, um, I, I, I you can tell me, but it, the way I read it, at least uh, the title uh, is somewhat of a continuation of this or, you know, an offshoot, uh, a separate project, but very much connected. And I am, of course, referring to Conflicting Memories, Tibetan History Under Mao Retold, a book you co-edited with Robbie Barnett and Francois Robin, which is coming out at the end of September. Mm-hmm. Um, so, did you, you want to say a few words about this book or anything else that you're working
0: on? I mean, as you say, that book is really um, came to be through the research I was doing for th- for this book, and it's it's the the um, outcome of, of a really uh, a long process, let's say, but one that was 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 very um, um, productive, I think. And it's it's an exciting book, I think, with 13 um, essays. Uh, based on different types of memories of of, of the of the Maoist past in Tibet, as well as uh, primary sources, which we hope that people will be uh, interested in looking at. Um, as far as my next project, um, you know, I'm I'm stuck here right now in Pittsburgh. Uh, i was supposed to be in Taiwan uh, doing research for that project, but um, essentially, it's going to be looking at sort of doing uh, dimensions aren't very clear yet. This is still in the early stages, but I want to look at northwest China in um, beyond Amdo. Um, in the uh, 20th century as a uh, as a frontier, as a border region, not as part of the Chinese state that came apart after the end of the, of the Qing dynasty, but as a place that had always been fractured, a place that had always been uh, a frontier, a place that had always been contested. And then think about the ways in which that um, was transformed or changed over the course of the 20th century, how state makers have tried to... Um, to um uh to erase those 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 frit those fissures uh and those differences. So in some ways it's a continuation of this book but one I think that's got a, a broader sort of um, outlook. Um and I'm I'm excited to get to the archives to see um how I how how it goes.
1: When when we can all once again return to yes. the archives. that's um, on, right, on, on whenever, whenever that you, is. Whenever that is. When you were talking about conflicting memories you said it was the result of a long process and in my experience of doing these podcasts a lot the phrase long process hides a good story um so i really <laughs> very much look forward of um, to seeing that book and hearing about it um but best of luck with that and with every you know all of the other projects you have uh, when you can once again return um to the archives um but you know good luck with that and thank you so much again beno for taking the time to talk about this project the result of a long process
0: absolutely thank you so much i enjoyed myself. Thank you.